Our scripture reading for today is Romans chapter 2, verses 8 through 16, and that can be found on your pew Bible on page 1195. That's Romans chapter 2, verses 8 through 16, and the Lord is glorified and reverenced by standing while we read his precious word. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned, sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the, law, that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the living God. Please be seated. I'd like to see how much we know about what is going on in uh, the world around us. Did you know that there were four letter bombs sent to businesses in the Netherlands this past week? How many of you knew that? All right, we have one. How about that the new world record for pole vaulting was set by an American-born Swede yesterday? All right, we got another one. All right. Did you know that there was an attack by Islamist uh, terrorists that left 40 dead in Mali? got several more. Did you also know that since 2012, there's been an ongoing war in Mali against the Islamic uh, rebels, and that the French troops are there. Uh, we hear so much about American troops being everywhere. The French troops are there helping the government take back that territory, and the U.S. is supplying drones and other forms of transportation for them. Okay, we've got a few that knew that. Did you know there's another hot spot? It's called Timbuktu. Timbuktu is actually a country. The Islamic fundamentalists have begun a systematic destruction of the Safi uh, temples and the manuscripts of those temples um, by the thousands. Okay, how about that in Italy, the deputy prime minister is uh, 
about to be charged with kidnapping because he ordered the retaining of illegal immigrants into the country. Okay. A couple of people follow the BCC. <laughs> All right. Did you also know that 140,000 Christian youth gathered this week in Brazil for the Send Brazil Mission Conference? And that Brazil's president at least professes to be an evangelical Christian. All right. So, why do I bring up this news? To show just how limited we are as human beings, there are events happening all over this globe. And for the most part, we don't know what it is that's happening. If it doesn't have to do with the United States of America, in particular some things in the United States of America, we somehow miss it. The American media, for certain, isn't going to fill us in on those details. But it also shows that for the most part, we as Americans, even Christian Americans, care about only those things that have to do with me and mine. You know, when you read this text this week in Romans chapter 2, verses 8 through 16, that God opposes those who are self-seeking, I wonder how many of us were convicted by that. Did we realize that these verses condemn every one of us? For years here at Metropolitan, we have stated that our purpose for existing as a church is to create a passionate pursuit of God's glory. That's what we are about and that can really be said to be the purpose of the whole Bible. The whole of the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. To create a passionate pursuit of God's glory. And so as the Apostle Paul directs his words in this second chapter of Romans, he directs them towards the Jew of his day. And he indicts them as those who are self-seeking rather than God-seeking. But as a Christian, you and I need to look in the mirror and see, in many ways, we're very similar. We have to ask ourselves if we deserve the same indictment that Paul places against the Jew of his day, do we deserve that same indictment as Christians today? And so I'd like you to reflect on that as our theme states this morning, that the Christian life consists of a faith that reflects love for God's glory rather than for self-seeking and pride. That is what we're about. The seeking of God's glory rather than the self-seeking for ourselves. So, here at Metropolitan, we hold to what is often called the Reformed faith. Reformed theology 
The emphasis of Reformed theology is that God has elected some from eternity past to be saved. And while that should humble us as we realize just how great a miracle it is that God awakened faith within us that we might be able to respond to Jesus Christ and therefore to be saved, often Reformed believers tend to have instead an arrogance and a pride. Well, the Jews had that same sense of pride. We see it by the way that Paul talks here in Romans chapter 2. That pride that God had elected them to be a special people to whom God revealed the scriptures, the Old Testament covenant, and through whom Christ would come. Therefore, as we look at this passage, notice how Paul warns that God's wrath is revealed against presumption. The presumption that somehow, because I was born a certain people or I attend a certain kind of church, that somehow that makes me a better person and more worthy of God's grace and God's mercy. Our text from verses 8 through 16 continue an argument that Paul began back in verse 1 through verse 7, the text that we looked at last week. But it even takes us back farther than that, because back in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, who inspired him to write what he wrote, Paul declared that God's wrath was being poured out against all wickedness and ungodliness of humanity. When you think about what that means, it means that the wrath of God is being poured out against the violations of God's right standards, of what God demands of us as his image bearers. And that's the wickedness, the unrighteousness. Not meeting God's standards, not, not doing what God demands of us. And why do we do that? Because humanity has suppressed the truth about God and his character, and that's the ungodliness. The wickedness is the behavior, the ungodliness is the belief. And Paul has laid this out for us, and he has proved in chapter 1, and will continue, as we have seen in chapter 2, he has proved why God is just in bringing forth a wrathful judgment on both Jew and Greek-speaking people and barbarians. And in chapter 1, that's where the focus was. It was upon the Gentiles. It was upon those who were not Jews and did not have their background. But here, in chapter 2, Paul has turned his attention to the Jew. And in doing so, he is seeking to show that they face the exact same wrath. There is no distinction the same wrath that God is pouring out upon the Gentile is the same wrath that he's pouring out against the Jew. We see it in verse two or verse three. In verse three, he says, "Do you suppose, O man, 
that you will escape the judgment of God. The fact is, there's lots of people who would answer that question with, yes, sure, I think I'm going to escape the judgment of God. Some would say, I'm going to escape the judgment of God because I'm a pretty good person. But others would say, I'm going to escape the judgment of God because I'm saved. Or because I'm one of the elect. The problem with those answers is that they all begin with I. I am elect. I am saved. I am good. So I want you to notice that God pays very little attention to the positions that you think that you hold. When Paul asked the question there, do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? He has a very interesting way of describing the person to whom he's talking. He says, O man. Now, there are several points that we could make from that, but first, O man is singular. And Nick pointed this out when he said that that this judgment of God, this justice of God, is personal. It is personal. He isn't talking here about a general group of people. He isn't talking about the Jews. He's not talking about the Gentiles. But he is pointing the finger at us individually, at you, at me. This is not about this group of people called the Jews. Notice that it's singular, Jew, when he gets to it later on. It's singular Greek, not plural Greeks. This is not about Jew or Greek, American, or even you Christians. Sometimes as human beings, we tend to think of ourselves in a cultural way as if we are some part of a group. And therefore, all the things that are part of that group are true of me. The Census Bureau reinforces that, doesn't it? Or even if you go to the doctor's office and they have you fill out one of those questionnaires, they ask you, what is your ethnicity? Right? Are you African-American? Are you Caucasian? Are you Hispanic? Are you Asian? Are you American Indian? And on goes the classifications and the categories that we place ourselves into. And we often end up with a bit of pride about the fact that we are from this particular group. And it was easy for the Jews to do that, wasn't it? Because the Jews had been specifically set aside by God. God had elected them, separating them out from all the rest of the world. So a person who was a Jew could certainly think of themselves as a favorite of God. While seeing other people as being less worthy because they were not part of their group. But Paul challenges that right away. In the very first verse, he says... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, you, the judge. 
Well, last week we discovered that there is only one true judge. It's not you, it's not me, it's not us setting up and establishing who's right and who's wrong, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is God's judge for all the things that happen in this world. And so as we look at what Paul is saying here, we see that the basis of God's judgment is not based upon a classification. It's not based upon a position within a certain group of people. To think that God will save you because you belong to that group, that you have a particular religious affiliation, that you're a Jew or you're Reformed or you're evangelical, is a sure road to damnation. But notice that God also pays little attention to priority. That is, thinking that somehow I have a priority in front of someone else. You see, the fact that God elected the nation of Israel and the Jewish people going back to the very time of Abraham with the the promises of the covenant, that has created this kind of subgroup amongst Christians today that elevate the Jews as a special people, unique people. And part of that is based upon what we read in Romans 1, verse 16, And then again here in Romans 2, verse 9, and Romans 2, verse 10. In each of those three places, we read the Jew first, and also the Greek. And this has led to some fundamentalist groups even believing that the Jewish people will be saved apart from Christ. Most people don't hold to that, but some do. But there are many Christian leaders, Christian groups, popular Christian teachers, as well as uh, reading in commentaries, that hold that there will be a special salvation for the Jews. For salvation, they say, is of the Jew. Such notables as John Piper, Douglas Moo, Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll, a host of others, look at Romans 1.16, and they interpret that to mean that salvation comes in priority to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles. Mission groups that work with Jewish people, like the Chosen People, or Jews for Jesus, or Jewish Voice Ministries International, and many others, they make that same claim today. They look at Paul's statement to the Jew first, and read that as God making the Jewish ministry a priority. Now, there should be a priority to those that God has laid the Jewish people upon their hearts, just as um, we have missionaries that God has laid the Afghanistan people on their hearts or, or the Chinese people on their hearts or some other group of people. That should be a priority to those individuals. God should be proclaimed as truth, should be claimed amongst the Jewish people. But they look at Paul's statement to the Jew first and they read that the gospel should be continually first to the Jews. And they miss what the rest of the verses say around it. If we read verse 11 of our text, 
Paul very clearly states there is no partiality. No partiality. That's the theme of both chapter 1 and chapter 2. There's no partiality in salvation and there's no partiality in judgment. All are the same. Paul is not raising the Jew up in priority in these three passages. Otherwise, that would also mean that the Jews get first priority in condemnation. Because that's what verse 9 states to the Jew first and also to the Gentile or the Greek. Instead, Paul is saying that the gospel, the word of God, came first to the Jew. Most English translations leave out a very important word from the original language in these three places where we read today to the Jew first and to the Greek. In all three places, there is a word that most English translations do not put in because it doesn't make for good English. And that's the word both. Both. You see, it really says both to Jew first and Greek. You see, in in, in using that term both, Paul is tying them together. He is uniting them. And so the word first does not mean first in priority. It means first in having received the gospel or first in being condemned by the gospel because of their unbelief when they heard it all the way back at the time of Moses and on through the Old Testament. You see, if Paul is making this about Jews being first or having a priority, he would not have used that word both. Instead, the emphasis is on the equality when he uses both. The equality of Jew and Gentile, even though the word came first to the Jews, beginning 2,000 years ago with Abraham, and then in the presentation of the law to Moses, and then the prophets speaking the truth of God's word throughout the Old Covenant. Why am I making this such a point? Because ultimately God's word is making it a point. God does not look on any person, not you, not me, not Jew, not Gentile, based upon what their physical or religious heritage is or was. We read in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 and 17, perhaps the the greatest statement about this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is Christ, he's in a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Paul is saying that there was a time when we thought of Jesus as a Jew. He was born as a Jewish individual. He was born as a descendant of King David. He was born into the people. And Jesus himself said that when he was here on earth, before his death and resurrection, that he had been sent to the lost sheep of Israel. There was a time... When we looked at Jesus and we said, Jesus is a Jew. 
But Paul says, we no longer regard him according to the flesh. Why? Because in his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ began a new kingdom, a new people, a new creation. And so the old has passed and the new has come. We have been born again into a new creation. And therefore we are Christians first and always. Verses 1 through 5 then teach us that God's wrath is revealed against any who would presume upon some national right that they have, or some ethnic or religious background, that that somehow makes them superior in any way into coming into a relationship with God. And now, beginning with verse 6, Paul advances the truth by pointing out that God's wrath is revealed against performance as well. Performance based upon religion. And Paul has just leveled the playing field. No one has a better chance of salvation based upon their ethnicity or based upon their religion. Why? Because, he says in verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. You see, God is colorblind when it comes to religion. He is colorblind when it comes to race. He is prejudice blind when it comes to ethnicity. And he is culture blind when it comes to some faith system. God has one standard by which every single human being ever born on this planet will be judged. How well does that one love God and keep his commandments? That is the ultimate test. So notice that God pays very close attention to what Nick mentioned earlier, to perfection. To perfection. When we were going through the book of Genesis, I pointed out some of the Hebrew structures, and one of those is a thing called a chiasm. Do you remember that? Okay. And what is a chiasm? A chiasm is where a first line and the last line match, and then the Lines in between match. So first line and fourth line would match. Second line and third line would would match. Well, what we're reading here, Paul is introducing us to Hebrew poetry, in a sense, in verses 7 through 10. Verse 7 and verse 10 go together. Verse 8 and verse 9 go together. So if we look at this passage... We have to look at verse 7 and 10 together. If you want to see why God's wrath is being revealed against performance as a means for thinking that I have eternal life, then we just have to look at these two verses. Look at verse 7. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. There you have it. God's requirement for gaining eternal life. What is it? That you must seek continually, you must seek continually the glory, honor of God, 
and immortality. And then you will have eternal life. For the Jew who is resting on being a Jew, Paul just cut the legs out from underneath them. Because God is not going to look at your Jewishness, he is saying. He is going to judge you on how you perform, on what you have done. It doesn't matter if you were born into the people of the nation of Israel who received the law of God at Mount Sinai, who had the prophets proclaiming the truth to them, who had the old covenant scriptures given to them. It doesn't matter if you were born into that people. Are you living the law? Are you living out what God has commanded, what he has shown us? And the answer, of course, is no. What is the standard that God is using to judge? That's where we go to verse 10. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Everyone who does good. As we look at those two verses, there is one kind of unique difference between verse 7 and verse 10. In verse 7, it says that you receive glory, honor, and immortality. That's what you're seeking. And in verse 10, it says glory, honor, and peace. In a way, that points us to the fact that he is talking to the Jews by the use of that word peace. Because peace is a very Jewish concept. Shalom, wellness, wholeness. And yet, he says, this is for both the Jew first and Greek. It is for both. For 2,000 years, the Jews had the opportunity of seeking peace with God. He had revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers, on through Moses, David, prophets, and all the while, They had that opportunity to seek peace with God, the shalom of God. The Gentiles, however, they'd only had about 25 years since the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, the gospel beginning to be proclaimed to them. But what is the requirement? Whether it was to Jew or Gentile, it was exactly the same. The need for immortality and the need for peace that neither attained, neither sought God wholeheartedly, and neither received immortality as a result. These two verses however, take on a greater significance because of the center focus, which is verses 8 and 9. So what do we see in verses 8 and 9? Notice that God pays close attention to human perversion because no one reaches perfection. Verse 7 tells us that they are to be seeking those things. Verse 10 tells us that in seeking those things, they're going to be judged by whether they were good. And what does Jesus say? 
There is none, none good, none good except God. No one reaches perfection. No one is good. And no one seeks God's glory and honor. Not even close. We're going to see that when we get to Romans 3, where we read that no one seeks God, not the true God, not in spirit and in truth, as Jesus mentioned to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. No one does that. And that's exactly what Paul points to then in verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. The self-seeking ones. You see, rather than seeking God's glory, we are seeking our own glory. Rather than seeking God's honor, we are seeking our own honor. The normal human being is self-seeking. And as a result, no human being comes even close to reaching the performance level that God requires of perfection to enter into heaven. And that result of that is seen in verse 9, the parallel to verse 8. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. And all of a sudden, we have been taken back to chapter 1, verse 18. beginning of the whole description of chapter 1 and chapter 2 flows out of the wrath of God is being revealed. Paul has connected the Jew and the Gentile together through this whole section. And the verse 9 goes on to say that God's judgment also is to the Jew first. And the Gentile. For with God, as verse 11 says, there is no partiality. It doesn't matter what your race, what your creed, what your color. God looks at the heart, and the heart is desperately wicked. And every intention of the thoughts of the heart is only evil continually. Therefore, God opposes the presumption that somehow race or creed gives me preference before God. And God's wrath is revealed against those who fail to perform at the level that he requires. That we be good as God is good. And now we come to verses 12 through 16. And there we find that God's wrath is revealed against preference, thinking that somehow, because of what I have, I gain a preference before God in being chosen by him. God opposes any idea that in any way, shape, or form, I deserve what I get from him. You see, Jews had made the mistake of thinking that they had a preferential treatment before other races and people because God had given the law to them. They uniquely received that law. They were special. 
But that is not the way that God sees it. Look at verse 12. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. It doesn't matter. God had given the Jews the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy contained the, the truth about the old covenant relationship between God and his people. He had called the people forth out of uh, Egypt, making them a people for himself, but not because they were special. And Moses makes that very clear in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, because they were a nobody. Because they were not even a nation. He says they were small, they were weak, they were slaves. God led them out of Egypt by his mighty hand for his glory, not for theirs. He led them to Mount Sinai and he spoke to them. And he did not speak to them because they were special. Because we see very quickly that they take what God has said and they turn it into a golden calf. They received the law mediated through the angels, Stephen tells us. Because God chose them to receive the law, however, the Jews began to believe that that made them special. That they had a divine privilege, a preference by God, simply because they were born into the nation of Israel. So notice that God pays attention to inner principles more than he does the outside. See, Paul attacks the idea that the reception of the law gave them any kind of preference before the Gentiles. Instead, the Gentiles also, he says, have the law written within them because they were created in the image of God. Every human being, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter who you are, they all instinctively know what is right and what is wrong because God has built it into their character as a human being. One might suppress that, as we saw in chapter 1. They, they may suppress it, but no one can claim ignorance. And that's why they are without excuse. Verse 15 states, They show the work of the law is written on their hearts, where their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The principles of right and wrong, of truth and error, they are built into the human DNA. So we are all without excuse. But that means there is no advantage for the Jew or the Gentile. What is true of the Jew in Paul's day is true of the Christian today. We may have the Bible, we may have the New Testament, we may have the completed canon. And because of that we might think that somehow that makes us better people. Well, the Bible is critical for our knowing God and coming into a relationship with him just having the Bible, even memorizing it as we are doing, or reading it every day, does not get us preferential treatment from God. James reminds us, as Paul does in this passage, it is not the hearer of the word, it is the doer that matters. And so, ultimately, 
Notice that God pays attention to eternal perdition. Perdition. Judgment. Damnation. Condemnation. This whole passage from chapter 1 through verse uh, 18 to this point has been about the wrath of God. Paul's leveled the playing field. He said, no one is good. We're all condemned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And one day we will stand before that final and ultimate judge to give an account for what we have done in these bodies, whether good or evil. And as we read in verse 16, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He's the standard. We are not. No one, not Jew or Gentile, not American or Puerto Rican or El Salvadorian or Kazakhstani or Romanian or African American or Chinese or Russian or any other national or ethnic group is going to stand before God on that day. You will not be judged by what your nationality or ethnicity is. Only human beings will stand before the judge on that day. Those who bear the image of God and were given birth through Adam and Eve, they will face the judge of all the earth. And no one will be able to claim special privilege. No one can expect preferential treatment. To do so would be presumptuous. There is only one way to stand before God, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ, believing the gospel, that God poured out his judgment, his justice, his wrath on his own son, so that those who by faith believe that Jesus died in their place might have eternal life. That is the only way that anyone will stand before God. That anyone will be able to see God and live with eternal life. And so in conclusion, do you understand that God does not show partiality based upon your ethnicity? based upon your knowledge, based upon your religion. Your knowledge, your religion, nor even your good deeds. If so, then how can we have eternal life? Through Jesus Christ alone. Faith in him alone. And on that day, we will hear one of two things. We will hear... Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. But Lord, Lord, I did this in your name, I did that in your name. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Or will we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That all depends. What are we trusting in? Ourselves? Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we look at this passage and there should be no one in this room who dares even lift their head. 
For we are all guilty of being self-seeking, of wanting our own way, and wanting you to be our genie rather than our God. Forgive us and open our eyes to the cross of Jesus Christ. Turn our thoughts to him that we might see in him our only hope. And by trusting in him, receive eternal life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.